Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. You knew that, right? We've done this before. If you're new to the show, hello, welcome. I want to remind you, it's a great day to be alive. It's Monday, the day after Father's Day, June 22nd, 2020. I'm coming to you live from the area above the garage at the Ollinger house here in Atlanta, Georgia. You might be able to hear the thunder outside. It's a little, it's an early afternoon thunderstorm. And it might come as a shock to you that I don't record this in a $30 million state-of-the-art studio. And that's why sometimes you hear the garage door open in the middle of an episode. It's like four feet below me and to the right. But sometimes you can hear the noises, the ambient tunes of suburbia, kids playing basketball out the window, thunder happening, the sound of laughter. And it is a great day to be alive. Here's what I'm grateful for this Monday, the Monday after Father's Day. Number one, my family. We had a fun time at the pool yesterday, social distancing. Didn't wear a mask while we swam, but it was a lot of fun to be out there in the chlorine. Number two, my health. And number three, the health of my family. After last week's episode with Julie Saxon, which you should go back and listen to if you didn't hear it after you listened to today's episode, which is a good one, and I'll tell you about that in a second, you got to listen to the interview with Julie. Julie lost her husband to a battle with colorectal cancer, six years of agony and ups and downs, and it's a really compelling, compelling story that you should check out. Just another reminder to make me and each of us to be grateful on a given day for our health and the health of our family. I'm also grateful for you, listener, for you, dear listener. And I was very happy to hear from some listeners this week. Heard from John in Austin. John, always good to hear from you. Thanks for the note. Keep it up on the ranch, splitting wood and mending fences and those other romantic things you do on the ranch. Please keep wearing your mask. I'm glad to hear I convince you to wear a mask. You'll feel better in public when you're not the person without the mask. Have you had that happen yet? Have you been, have you gone into the store forgetting your mask and you look around and you go, oh yeah, we're in a pandemic. Everybody else has a mask on and they're looking at me like I'm a jerk because I don't have a mask on. You should have the mask and have fun with it, kids. Have fun with it. Match it up. Accessorize. You know what I'm talking about. Heard from uh, Bill in Pensacola. Thank you, Bill. Enjoy the Duckhorn Cabernet. Isn't it a little warm in Pensacola for Cabernet right now? Might it be rosé weather, perhaps, on the panhandle? Or do what I do, just fill it up with ice cubes. I'd rather drink cold Cabernet than rosé any day. I don't care what Paul Sullivan of the New York Times says. I'll drink a little Duckhorn Cabernet with some ice in it. I'm not too good for that. Also, hi to John in New Hampshire. I hope you enjoy the book. Thanks for ordering it. That's the book, by the way, folks. My book that came out a couple of years ago, it's called You Should Totally Get an MBA. And if you're looking for a graduation gift for a new college graduate or a 23-year-old or a birthday present for a 23 or 24-year-old who needs to get off of his or her respective ass and make something with her career, I highly recommend my book. You should totally get an MBA. Search for it on that Amazon site. I'd like to tell you it's available at Bookshop, but it's not. I've got a favor to ask of you. Would you do me a favor and uh, do one of two or three things right now? Would you subscribe to this podcast? It's called Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. If you enjoy it, what this will do will allow this podcast to appear on your phone on a weekly basis so you don't have to go back scrambling through, searching for crazy money each time you want to hear 
one of my new episodes. Subscribe now. You could also follow on Spotify, which by the way, Spotify is just kicking all kinds of butt in the podcasting world. And so if you're a Spotify fan like I am, Spotify is my music app. By all means, add us on Spotify, follow on Spotify. You also might want to share with, say, three friends, three friends who you think who have a good sense of humor, who are curious about the way the world works, who read, or who you would go to for recommendations for a book. Send this episode to them right now. Thank you. Okay. I hope you all had a wonderful Father's Day, appreciating all your Father's Days. Let me tell you a little bit about this week's episode. I've got a very interesting conversation with a guy named Michael Brody Waite. And today we're going to talk about addiction, work, and living mask-free. Yes, living mask-free. Now, I know I just told you to wear your mask, okay? But this is a metaphorical mask we're talking about. And I'll tell you about his book in a second. But before we jump into that, let me ask you a question. Because this, is, this comes up in my conversation with Michael. Can you truly be yourself at work? Can you just let it out at work? And I don't mean you have to say every single thing that comes to mind. I don't mean you have to say the most offensive thing that comes to your mind. I don't mean that you have to provoke people just because you feel like it. I mean, can you be yourself at work? Can you be honest with your boss? Can you be frank with your coworkers without fear of reprisal? Michael contends that we would be not only happier, but much more successful in our work lives if we could work without those metaphorical masks. If we could bring our true self to the office every day, that we would succeed in the way that he has. And the story is very compelling. But I take issue with this because I haven't always been able to be myself in a work environment. And that's, I think, why I've ended up doing this. But when I worked at Facebook, I really felt like I couldn't be myself. I said it. I said it out loud. I don't know if I've ever said that before to people out loud. I don't know why, but I found like I had to edit myself over and over that I had to walk on eggshells for risk of either offending other people or the ethos of the company. Or sometimes I felt like I had to toe the company line, even though to do so would work contrary to protecting my team. Or if I offered feedback that things weren't perfect, then I was being a complainer. And hey, I complain sometimes. In eighth grade, my classmates voted me biggest complainer, by the way. And since my wife found that out, I haven't won an argument because she just says, oh, sounds like the champion complainer is coming out. And I say it wasn't champion complainer. It was biggest complainer. And method dryer sheets don't work. But sometimes at work, I felt like I, if I said anything that wasn't you know 100% positive, that I'd be labeled as a negative Nelly or somebody that wasn't supportive of his teammates. And it's like, that's, that's not how I saw it. I don't know if it was because I was 38 years old and for the first time in my career, I felt old at work. Like there was a generation gap and I felt like if I said something, I would betray my backwards 38 year old thinking because 38 years old is so old. Something happened on one of my first days at Facebook. I sat down with one of the engineers and they walked me through the photo product, which was new and it was revolutionary the way photos were shared. And he showed me how photos would show up in other people's timelines And I said, wow, this is really pretty amazing. Hey, can I get your business card? And he looked at me like the smell of death was wafting off an ancient dinosaur corpse. And he looked at me and said, yeah, I could give you my business card or you could just like friend me since that's kind of what we do here. And that was, that was it anyway. Yeah. So anyway, 
Let me tell you about my guest. At 23 years old, Michael Brody Waite drank a fifth of vodka and a 12-pack of beer every day. He smoked tons of weed and cigarettes, and he would do any drug he could get his hands on. That's in quotes. When he wasn't throwing up blood, he was mooching off of or just stealing from his friends. After finally getting clean, Michael achieved tremendous success in technology sales and eventually became the CEO of a health tech startup that sold for many millions of dollars. In his new book, Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, How to Lead Like Your Life Depends on It, Michael discusses the importance of living mask-free, and yes, he acknowledges the irony of advocating not wearing a mask during a pandemic, that is to lead with honesty and vulnerability. And while this podcast, this crazy money one that you're listening to right now, isn't about leadership or entrepreneurship, I wanted to talk to Michael because the lessons he shares in his book are really worth implementing in our daily lives. And if we are aware of the masks we're wearing, whether it pertains to money or our careers or our families, we are going to be able to take the first step towards living without them. And speaking of the book, when I started reading it, I had my antennae out for self-help or motivational BS, but I really didn't find any. And what I found was Michael being very honest and upfront about his personal weaknesses and how when he addressed them and started living life more honest and openly, he not only got back on track, but he took his careers to new unimaginable heights. In this week's episode, we talk about addiction, recovery, accountability, authenticity, money, careers, and gratitude. And we get into that discussion about what I raised above. Is it possible to bring your true self to work? Michael's TED Talk on this topic has been viewed over 1.6 million times by people in over 25 countries. And before I jump into the interview, I want to say thank you to my podcast uncle, Joe Saul C. Hi of Stacking Benjamin's podcast for introducing me to Michael. I really enjoyed this conversation. Michael is a very interesting and kind fella, as you will hear. This is Michael Brody Waite. When my startup was growing and we were on national TV and I knew that if I didn't handle the exposure well, that I would wreck our company, I realized I didn't know how to be a CEO. I wanted to tell my team that fact and everything in my head said, if I tell them that I have no idea how to run the company, they won't trust me. But I practiced these three principles and I went and I told them and they helped me find a mentor. And then they got to walk through that journey with me. It's not about voluntary disclosure of everything that you have that you're scared to share. It's about not hiding things that are relevant. It was relevant to my team that I had no idea how to be a CEO. People can see when you're hiding a truth and that's when they lose trust. And so I think leaders should be able to share those things with the people, just like the example that I gave you. It's not necessarily about volunteering everything. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Michael Brody Waite, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks, man. I'm glad to be here. Michael, how did you end up at age 23 strung out on Venice Beach? Well, we are just like going straight into it. Yes, we are. That's how we do it here. I like it. How did I end up there? Yes. Well, a lot of drugs and alcohol. (laughs) And isn't that how everybody ends up in Venice Beach with a hooker and a homeless man? (laughs) You know, my parents, when I was a kid, they sat me down in high school and I was a really good kid. I didn't do anything. Where'd you grow up? California in Los Angeles. For anyone listening, I hate Los Angeles and I'm sorry if you live there. So (laughs) my kids were born there, but that's fine. That's fine. Oh yeah. I just, so I basically just completely annihilated my credibility with you by assaulting your kids. Ah, You'll earn it back. Uh, I'm sure. 
Well, it just depends on whether you like them or not. <laughs> so my parents sat me down in high school and I was like a goody two shoes. And they were like, okay, so here's the deal. Your dad's an alcoholic. So whatever you do, you can't drink and you can't do drugs. If there is a chance that you think you've passed on the addiction gene to your child, the last thing you need to do is tell them not to drink, <laughs> not to do drugs, because then they're going to start obsessing over doing them. And so shortly thereafter, I started experimenting with alcohol and drugs. Then I went to college and all hell broke loose. And my freshman year of college, I had a moment where I felt like I didn't have the instructions for how to deal with life and life's terms. I'd had an interaction with a friend. I couldn't even explain how I felt. I lost my cool over nothing. And I was like, dude, I just don't know how to deal with life. And I went home. It was the first time I drank alone. There was a Lifetime movie of all channels about a drunk. And I remember thinking, life completely baffles me. But you know what? Being a drunk is something I can do. And if I do that, I can be numb. And so that kind of started. And then that led to me getting a whole host of consequences and ended up with me on the streets of Venice Beach. If only you had seen that Scott Bayo after school movie stoned instead of that Lifetime special, <laughs> maybe your life had gone a different direction. I actually directly attribute Charles in Charge to the reason that I had to use drugs and alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good reason to seek uh, refuge in the, in the bottle, I think. I agree. So you say that at 23, you drank a fifth of vodka and a 12-pack of beer, smoked two packs of cigarettes a day, and more weed than any human should have. And as if that wasn't enough, you also did any drugs you could get your hands on. What other drugs did you do, and how did you pay for them? Paying? Who pays for drugs when you can steal them? So mushrooms and painkillers. I tried to get some acid, couldn't get it. I took a tab of ecstasy once. It didn't really work but mostly mushrooms and painkillers. And I had a friend that was part of a wholesale drug situation. I won't go into detail on that, but he had a lot of access to a lot of stuff and he would just give me what he had. And then if I had any friends that had painkillers around, I'd pop a Vicodin or two if I could, or seven, whatever I could do. What was your day-to-day -day life like? Where'd you sleep? What did you do during the day? So towards the end, my buddy Aaron let me stay at his house over a weekend. And I decided to stay for three months because I had nowhere to go. And I was like the worst house guest ever. So I had a couch that I would sleep on. If he had guests, I would sleep on the floor. And the daily routine was this. I'd wake up at around 11 a.m. He's already at work because he's actually a responsible human and he knows how to show up to things. I start stealing his money so I can go buy a pack of cigarettes and buy a bunch of alcohol. I start drinking and then I steal his drugs or I go try to cop and get more drugs. And then I start eating his food. And then I invite strangers over to his house and potentially wreck things. And then he comes home and he goes, what the hell is going on here? But he loved me so much. He let me stay there. And I just kept repeating that cycle. And I would stay up till three or four in the morning. I mean, there were some times where I didn't go to sleep for 48 hours, whatever. But my routine was wake. If I could bake, if I had any drugs, and then get to drinking as soon as possible. And then once I'm drinking, try to find drugs as soon as possible and then try to get as high as possible. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite a way to live. When did you hit bottom? It was not that far from the night that I was with the hooker and the homeless man. Like it was, I don't even know if the right word is hooker these days, it's like sex worker. I don't know what the right word is, but I'm not trying to be disrespectful. But I'm sitting on the beach and you know, I want the homeless guy's blunt. He wants the <laughs> prostitute. And she wants me to be her last customer for the evening. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I don't think this is what my parents envisioned when they sent me to college. Like, this is not what they were striving towards. 
being in that moment and realizing that I was just trying to do whatever I could to use and I was just trying to use whoever I could to get what I wanted to use, I started to really look at myself in the mirror and say, holy shit, who are you? And so the last like thing that I remember is my parents went on a trip and they asked me to house it. And so I house sat for like 30 days and they gave me three things to do. They said, we want you to shred all these papers that need to be recycled. We want you to take care of the bird and the bird cages. And we want you to take care of your childhood cat. The only thing I did was take care of that childhood cat. And I swear that felt harder than working 10 hours today. <laughs> and all I did was have food delivered, have alcohol delivered, have Aaron come over and get high. And I watched every dating reality TV show there was. So I can still remember the lineup. At 3 p.m. there was Shipmates. At 4 p.m. there was Blind Date. At 5 p.m. there was like the fifth wheel. At 6 p.m. it was Blind Date again. And seven I don't even remember seven, but then they all come back on after syndication at 11. Rinse and repeat. And I remember being in that situation and I had this moment where I looked at myself in the mirror and for the first time in a couple of years, I really looked at who was looking back and I didn't recognize the guy. He was hopeless. He was way heavier than he used to be. He was unkempt. And I was just like, this is the end. I'm done with this. And so that night I tried to take more drugs than I'd ever taken. My goal was either die or get higher than I've ever been. And I got higher than I've ever been. But then five minutes later, after I realized I was really super high, I wanted more. And I just started crying because I was like, I can't keep doing this. And so shortly thereafter, my parents did an intervention on me. I told them I was fine. But after a couple months, when my buddy wanted to kick me out of his place, I was like, okay, I'll go to rehab. And so on September 1st, 2002, I woke up in Rancho Mirage, California at the Betty Ford Center. And you say when you got there, you were throwing up blood. Was that caused by all the alcohol you were drinking at the time? Yeah. Yeah. It was the alcohol. And what were the first few days of rehab like? Had you surrendered yet or were you resisting at that point? I was totally resisting. So I liked the idea of not having to worry about where I was going to stay for 28 days and being able to get food. <laughs> like that was why I went. In fact, I told my right. buddy Aaron that I needed a vacation. My whole life was a vacation, but I needed a vacation. So I was more excited about not having to worry about shelter and food. But when I started hearing my story come out of everyone's mouth, I started to realize, wait a second, maybe there's something that I need to look at here. And so the first three days I walked around telling people I didn't need to be there and they kept telling me their story and they were all in similar situations. And I started to realize, crap, this might be my one chance to turn my life around. I remember reading something in one of the pieces of literature that said, let anyone who thinks they're not an alcoholic just not drink for a year. And I was like, I can't do that. Like, I can't do that. And then there was another thing that said, let anyone who's an alcoholic go order two drinks and stop. And I was like, I can't do that either. Mm -hmm. And so between those like litmus tests for me and then hearing my story coming out of everybody's mouth, by day four, I was like, crap, I really have to dig into this because I just accepted that I was going to die. I accepted that my life was over. But I also heard, I didn't just hear the bad things, I heard the hope. And for the first time, I was like, wow, I could find a completely new way to live. And it got me excited. And so I threw myself into it. Although uh, the first day, funny story, they hooked me up with a quote unquote buddy. And I don't even remember what his name was. Like, let's say his name was Carl. I like and Carl. So he, Carl's good. Carl's good. So I usually say Billy, but Billy's just weird. <laughs> so, or I could say Paul. Uh, ah, so, no. <laughs> so Carl is like showing me around the property and like, you know, taking me to lunch and all that stuff. And I come back from lunch and I feel lost. I'm like wondering where Carl is. And I go to someone, I'm like, Hey, where's Carl? And they're like, oh, you didn't hear? Carl escaped. 
He like ran away the first day. And so then I go and sit down with a couple of other drug addicts and they go, Hey, just like I'm in like prison. They're like, Hey, what are you in for? Right. And I'm like, uh, alcohol, weed and whatever you got. And they're like, no intravenous drugs. I was like, no, they're like, get the F out of here. Come back when you have a real drug addiction. Right. Like it's like, talk about people rejecting you. (laughs) It's like Bob Saget and Half Baked when they're in the group. Oh God. I <laughs> He's <love> like, <laughs> wait. <laughs> and then he goes on to catalog all the things he would do for cocaine. But uh, a very specific thing that he exactly. would do for hours to get the cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that was one of my favorite movies to watch when I was baked, um, of course. But yeah, that 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 was great. When do you open yourself up? When does vulnerability become a part of your life? I think it started in a small way when I was in rehab. Because I had a moment where I found out that a bunch of the people were drinking during the nights. They were sneaking out and getting alcohol and bringing it back in. And I converted to, this is the only way I'm going to live. I have to give this my full best shot. And I got scared because I wanted to join them. And so I did something that I normally would not have done. And I went to the counselors and I started, I started crying because I felt like a tattletale. I felt weak. I mean, all these weird things going on. And I was like, someone is sneaking in alcohol and it's scaring me. And I shared that vulnerability. It almost ruined my stay there because they thought when I was saying someone was bringing in alcohol, they thought I was talking about me. And they're like, okay, Michael, why don't you tell us what this someone, like (laughs) where this someone is going? I'm like, no, no, wait, wait, it's not me. It's literally, and they're like, okay, then who is it? And I remember sitting there and just finally like going, you know what? I'm going to say who it is. And I tell them. And so that created a sequence of events where those guys got kicked out. Some of the people were against me. A new guy showed up that wanted to be tough. And one night, all the addicts like called an addict only meeting. And they said, we need to know who's snitching around here. And on my way to this meeting, this new guy told me, hey, by the way, I have a knife and I will use it. I was like, oh God, like, do they know that I said something or whatever? And so they're like, we want to know who's snitching or whatever. Bob has a and- knife. <laughs> yeah, I know. You don't do that though. So like, it's literally the contrast of the jungle that I came up in and then this new world. And lucky for me, there was a guy, he was like the producer for entertainment tonight or something like that. And he said, I don't know who it is, but I'm glad they did it because I'm trying to save my life in here. And so then I piped up and said, I did it. And that made me very vulnerable to a subset of the addicts that I was living with, but it also allowed me to not hide what my motive was and what I had done. And so how do you start living that vulnerability that has become one of the main themes of your work today? It started with me getting out of treatment, me trying to get a job, interviewing at a place called Sam Goody that most people won't remember because you had to go buy these physical things called CDs that (laughs) nobody knows what they are anymore. So I just say it's a brick and mortar Spotify. And so I went in there and I remember it was the only chance I had to get a job. There was the only place that called me. If I didn't get, I was going to get kicked out of my halfway house. I asked my manager, what do I tell them about the gap in my resume? And he has this ridiculous notion that I should tell him the truth. And I do, assuming that I will be rejected, not get the job, get kicked out of the halfway house, end up on the street, relapse and die. But I learned to practice the principles that I talk about in my book and, and in my TED talk and the strangest thing happened. The guy respected me for it and he hired me, but I did the thing that nobody wants to do in a professional world. You don't have to be an addict to relating to not wanting to tell someone you're interviewing with the worst thing about you ever 
in the job interview, whether you can stay in a house is on the line. And that's when I really learned that, wait a second, vulnerability in the professional world isn't going to kill you. And it started kind of a journey of me really discovering how the principles that I used to recover can give you a professional superpower. Which is really what we're here to talk about today. But before we move on to that, I have to read what you wrote about working at Sam Goody. You say, I wasn't changing the world, but I could at least save a few people from wasting their money on fish (laughs) albums, with fish being a strong comorbidity to drug use. That's really doing the Lord's work. I I think that's where your life really started to change, was keeping people from fish. I agree. No matter how much I love drugs, I never love fish and I never could understand. And I tried, I remember trying to get higher and try to listen to the Grateful Dead and fish and just going, this is supposed to be working and it's not like it is not working. I hate them. I hate this music. And so, yeah, man, it was a way for me to reject my old life. But, you know, every once in a while when I'd be organizing the rap section, Reba McIntyre would show up and I would get really pissed. <laughs> right. And I'd be like, right. who's putting Reba McIntyre in the rap section? Right. I have to put her back in the country yeah. section. Well, when I go see Fish with my friends, I think of Chance the Rappers saying, we don't do the same drugs anymore. So <laughs> clearly, clearly we're not on the same level here because I leave at intermission. Well, the fact that you go means that I continue to insult you. Your children are from Los Angeles. You had your children in Los Angeles. You love fish. I don't love fish. That's the thing. So I've got a few very good buddies from college and they're into fish and jam bands. And the last time they came to visit, they came to visit because fish was playing here. And because I wanted to hang out with my buddies, we paid hundreds and hundreds of dollars for scalp tickets to see fish. And about 10 songs in, I was like, I'll see you guys at home. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. So, so so it's a push. Los Angeles versus fish. All right. Is a music store a safe place for an early sober person to work? It is safer than a bar for sure. Or a crack house. You do not want to have your first job being in a crack house. It was good for me. I'd done it before. It was actually a really excellent contrast because I'd been an assistant manager at a place called The Warehouse in California, and I would go to my job high every single day. And so I found that I was able to execute my job a lot better without using. But I loved music. Music was my obsession at the time. And so it worked. I don't think it's a dangerous place to be because I think concerts, like venues, that's a dangerous place to be if you're in early recovery. But, you know, buying CDs, not a big deal. Amy Grant came and bought a CD for me. And <laughs> that didn't make me want to relapse. It made me want to go to my meeting and share about it, you know? That's funny. So from there, you take a pretty big leap, professionally speaking, and you get into sales at a big company, and you're very good at it. What made you good at it? Actually, it's really simple. When I got there, they said, look, we've built an entire sales engine. We're going to train you on how to do it. And all you have to do is execute all the steps that we provided and you will be ridiculously successful. That's what I would experience during the day. And at night, I would go to my meetings and talk to my sponsor that said, hey, we figured this out, how to stay clean. We've created some steps. All you have to do is follow them or you will freaking die. And so if you're being teachable and following proven steps on how to save your own life at night, it makes it really easy to follow directions during the day. And I was like the number one sales rep out of 500. And really at the end of the day, it was because I executed the system more rigorously than the people next to me. Was there a humility involved in that, that others weren't embracing? Yeah, absolutely. And I experienced that myself where they would teach us a way to close on the call to like close the sale of a computer. And I had a level of arrogance where I was like, well, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it a different way. And it was hurting me. And then I went to a mentor and they're like, look, when I do it, it works. It's just really uncomfortable. 
And that became like a theme where I had to learn how to do uncomfortable work to get success. And so I think that I was extremely coachable. I was constantly looking for the equivalent of my quote unquote business sponsor. And so one of the things that I did that was very different than everybody around me was I volunteered my weaknesses so much that people thought I was weak. And then I would wax them in the standings because instead of trying to sit there and say, I've got it all figured out or I'm the best, or I know what I'm doing. I would just say, teach me everything. And then I would be able to execute it without trying to put my own spin on it, without trying to be special, without fighting the man or, or all those different types of things. And it gave me a level of success that most people didn't have. At what point in your career did you embrace and even articulate the concept of living and working with no masks? And we should point out that this is in a pre-COVID world uh, <laughs> and has nothing to do with, with stopping the spread of a virus. As the founder of the mask-free movement, things have gotten really weird for me recently. <laughs> for, what, for what crazy thousands. timing this is. Oh my God, dude, my book came out. It's all about the mask-free program. I actually had someone on social media <laughs> looking at my content that sent me a message saying that I was killing people. Oh my God. And I was like, wait, I'm talking about figurative masks. I'm talking about leaders hiding their true selves. And they're like, oh, that's cool. But, <laughs> but they had already threatened my life, which wasn't cool. Right. So for me, I started thinking about whether I was wearing a mask early in recovery. It was a, a concept that I didn't articulate to others until after my experience selling my company, because I was really trying to codify it intentionally. But I always felt at the beginning of rehab is they made us do this really like touchy feely new agey thing where they made us create masks and to take cutouts for magazines to represent the true us and the using us. That was a really helpful mental construct because it gave me this idea of I'm either going to show what's underneath or take it off. And so it's something that I would always integrate into how I thought of how I was growing, but it's not something that I really articulated to others until I had sold my company and I was trying to figure out what the heck made us so successful. And I knew, but I really wanted to be really good at articulating it. And I was like, well, at the end of the day, it's really what I learned at the beginning in recovery. It's that we either show our true self or we wear a mask or we wear a mask over a mask. And that became really helpful because I think when we talk about authenticity or being your true self, that's really fuzzy and nebulous and really hard to determine. A mask is either on or it's off. And I think that becomes more helpful. Well, let's run through relatively briefly how you got from your individual contributor sales role into a leadership role at a small company that became a very meaningfully sized company. At Sam Goody, I found out that living and leading mask-free wouldn't kill me. My eight years in corporate America working without a mask on as a leader made me an outsider. It did make people not like me and judge me. It also made me become the manager of the people that were my mentors. And I got eight promotions in eight years. So I realized, okay, this isn't just something I can survive. This is something that will allow me to thrive professionally. Then I left at the height of the recession and co-founded a company that I became the CEO of. Our goal was to change access to healthcare. We had no investors, no money, no experience, nothing. And as we were building it, I really intentionally wanted to take the principles that I had learned in recovery and that I'd learned to practice at a Fortune 50 company and build an entire culture, what I now call a mask-free culture, a culture where employees aren't scared to tell a CEO or a customer no, a culture where people aren't scared to share their weaknesses, a culture where you don't have seven meetings because you're avoiding difficult conversations, you have them in one, and a culture where everybody's unique perspective is valued. 
And so as we started bootstrapping that company and building it, we started annihilating competitors that had 150 million in venture capital against my credit card. And one of the things I started to realize was, wow, this isn't just a competitive advantage for me as an individual. It's a competitive advantage for us as a company. And that allowed us to grow 20,000% in less than six years. We became an Inc. 500 company, we owned Best Place to Work, and we were acquired by a publicly traded company in 2015. And that's when I left. And I said, after I made sure everybody was transitioned, I said, wow, I really need to take the time that I'm now afforded and codify this because this is a different way to lead. It's a different way to work. And it not only makes people more successful personally, it makes them more successful professionally. And that's when the TED Talk happened. So let's go back to the mask concept. What kind of masks did you see people wearing in the workplace? I don't know that I had this language then, but I've done a mask assessment on over a thousand leaders at big companies, small companies, boardroom, mailroom, doesn't matter, classroom. And I've distilled everything down into four masks. And that is we say yes when we could say no. We hide a weakness. We avoid difficult conversations. And we hold back our unique perspective. And what I found through my assessment is that 90% of leaders are doing these things and it's costing them 500 hours a year after assessing 1,000 people to identify this. And so there's a lot of different manifestations of each of these masks. But those are the four things that are holding back every individual team and organization in the world. So let's sort of come at this from two sides. What do I risk by living without my mask? And what do I risk by living with it? If you live without it, you risk the same thing that every real leader in history had to risk. You risk taking an unpopular stance, you risk making yourself vulnerable, and you risk changing the world. That's probably like, you know, I'm trying to make it sound good. But- <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> but- You got a book you're to not sell, gonna, man. <laughs> you're not gonna be fully liked, but like, I mean, dude, every great leader, Winston Churchill was not well liked. Abraham Lincoln had to go against his political party. Rosa Parks had to move to the front of the bus. People had to forget what other people were thinking in order to create real change and innovation. So I think that you risk being unpopular. And I think that you risk some of the things that you're scared of happening. When I was at the Fortune 50 company, someone started a rumor that I had relapsed. I was very open about being a drug addict that was in recovery and I was scared of what that meant. That was a battle that I lost, but there was no war that I lost. I still got promoted. Everything worked out fine. So I think you risk some people taking advantage of it. I think you risk some people dinging you. But if you wear a mask, I think you risk far more because you end up living someone else's life. And then when you live someone else's life, you don't fully realize your potential. You cost yourself an insane amount of time. We found that 31 hours are wasted by workers in unnecessary meetings. 31 hours. If they could just say no, when they mean no and they feel no, they could get rid of that. One weekend, I spent 22 hours trying to figure out how to use Microsoft Excel pivot tables. I could have spent 10 minutes asking my manager for help. 70% mm. of employees are avoiding difficult conversations with their bosses, their coworkers, and their employees. And that's not even customers and investors and stakeholders. So I think that you risk in the trade-off to be liked and to conform, I think you risk your personal and professional success by wearing a mask. This runs counter to the way we've been trained. You make the point that we're conditioned to know how to act in life going all the way back. When we go to work, our bosses and coworkers teach us how to act in order to get the promotion, income, and recognition we desire. The underlying message through all of this is, who do I need to be in order to get the thing that I want? And the implication yep. is being who you are isn't enough. Yeah. I love whoever wrote that. That was great. I think you wrote it. 
Oh, that's, oh, I love myself. Um, <laughs> I actually wish I could love myself more. So A, by the age of four, 90% of children have been trained to learn how to lie and they do it. We have a lot of things that go into training us to conform, to fit into the tribe for survival. There's a physiological thing where like, we don't want to stick out or else we don't get to be part of the tribe. And the way we get to survive is by being part of the tribe. Because when you look at humans, we actually kind of suck. Like a tiger can rick us to, fr- <laughs> to threads. Like we are not very powerful and effective. So we use our brains and we work in groups. But if you want to be more practical about it, up until 25 years ago, this is a command and control leadership, which is really what masked leadership is. Up until 25 years ago, that actually worked. That made sense. If you're a general in the battlefield and you made decisions, you couldn't have your little battalions questioning what you said. So you had to pretend that you had full confidence in it and that you never made mistakes. And so corporate leaders use command and control leadership to run companies. And that made sense. But 25 years ago, two different things changed at the same time. The first is how we connect fundamentally changed. The first social media site went online in 1997, and at that time, mobile phones started to become accessible. And we started a shift in being hyper-connected to the people close to us to being connected to everyone and no one. And so connectivity between humans is way down when you talk about like intimacy and real connection. At the same time, we started a transition from a manufacturing economy to a services economy. When you transition from a manufacturing to a services economy, you go from centralizing decision-making to wanting to decentralize decision-making. And you go from a product being impersonal and on a shelf to the product being a person solving a problem and delivering a service. So in a world where humans have become the product and we are absolutely challenged when it comes to genuine human connection, that's why you see so many people begging for authentic leadership, authentic products, authentic companies, because we're dying for authentic connection and it's actually aligned with our business interest, but we don't know how to do it. So just to be clear, Mass leadership made sense up until the paradigm changed. But with this shift in the paradigm, now mask free doesn't just become something that's good for you personally. It becomes a competitive advantage professionally. So GeoCities, the first social network, changed everything. That was responsible for this. Basically, yeah. That's also why I use drugs. (laughs) Because of GeoCities. (laughs) Assuming that you're right, and I'm not arguing with you on that, you've got a methodology for living sans mask. Practice rigorous authenticity, surrender to the outcome, and do uncomfortable work. What does practice rigorous authenticity mean? We've all heard the word authenticity and we've seen leaders that try to check the authenticity box. Anybody can keep it real the one time when their friend's in the room. The question is, are you true to yourself in word and action every time, no matter the cost? Rigorous authenticity is very different than just regular authenticity. And so as an example, Leaders have kind of understand that authenticity is important, so they don't pretend that they're infallible. Now what they do is they say, oh, I've struggled, but now I'm good. Or they say, oh, I have a big problem, but I already know the solution. But rigorous authenticity is I'm in the middle of the crap right now. I have no idea how the story ends, but walk with me and watch what I do. That's very, very, very different. And so it's the ability to identify the mask that you're wearing and learn how to act without it. Unfortunately, you can't act without it without the second principle, which is surrender the outcome. Leaders are trained to obsess over outcomes. We've all seen leaders wasting so much energy on things that they can't control, focus on outcomes, that they miss all the things that they can control. Surrender is something that's really hard for people to do, but when you do it, it reclaims a tremendous amount of energy. And so for me, like as an example, that's the difference between a salesperson obsessing over their quota and their territory versus the salesperson that's just making calls. And leaders do this all the time. 
when you learn how to surrender the outcome, you can get all worked up over what's going to happen if you take off the mask, or you can focus on all the things that you can control once you do. And that's about energy shifting. So the first one's about clarity. The second one's about energy shifting. Doing uncomfortable work, most people are like, oh, Mike, I know how to do uncomfortable work. No, you don't. You know how to do smart work and hard work. That's physical and intellectual. Uncomfortable work is emotional. It's totally different. It's a sensation in our body that deters us from taking action we know we need to take. How many of us have seen someone doing eight hours of hard work, avoiding five to 10 minutes of uncomfortable work? The number one place this manifests in companies is performance management. The number two place is customer negotiations. So when you put all those together, I actually have a step-by-step, no pun intended, methodology that allows someone to apply these three principles to a mask for 28 days where they just do something one minute a day. We call it the mask-free minute. And when they do the mask-free minute and they apply these three principles to a mask, they start to live without a mask and they start to reap a benefit. And I could give you some examples of that, but that's basically in a nutshell how we do it. Yeah. So I want to play devil's advocate here. And, you know, this show really isn't about leadership or entrepreneurship, but I wanted to talk to you because I think what you're talking about is really important. I mean, you're trying to tackle one of life's biggest questions. How do we become ourselves? How do I live in a way that is in accordance with who I want to be? And on the other hand, I'm skeptical that that's truly possible in the modern workplace. You say, for example, we don't build our deepest levels of trust based on our strengths and perfections. Instead, our deepest levels of trust are established in our shared humanity and our vulnerability and perfections. So where's the line of sharing your vulnerabilities and sharing too much? That's a great question. One thing that should be clarified is authenticity is not honesty or transparency. Authenticity is acting in accordance to your values and being true to yourself. So Tony Soprano would be inauthentic if he was nice to you. He's authentic when he kills people. (laughs) Sure. So for me, like for example, as a CEO, authenticity is not sharing everybody's compensation plan with each other because I don't believe in that. So I'm aligning with my values. At the end of the day, there is a line, you define that line, and I'll give you a really simple layered example. When I was running a nonprofit that helped 2000 entrepreneurs a year start a grow business, when I gave my notice to the board, They asked me for three weeks before I told a soul so they could get their communication package together because that was really important because we relied on donations. I ended up in a strategic planning session with my employees where they were talking about things that were a year from now, and I didn't tell them that I wouldn't be here. I was acting authentically because my value of not destabilizing the organization superseded my value of being transparent in that moment. So for a drug addict... Some, it's really important to them. They value their anonymity. Them not sharing that they're a drug addict doesn't mean that they're not being authentic. They're executing to their value system. So I'm just saying that if you align with your value system, people will be able to see that and they'll trust you. And there's a study from Google that backs all of this up. They they did a great study in the Rework Project where they identified 180 characteristics across 200 of their best performing teams. And they said, what makes our best performing teams? And the number one characteristic was psychological safety. And you cannot establish psychological safety until you as the leader drop the mask because otherwise the other people get the message that I can't trust you. That's fine for Google to say that. But in Silicon Valley, specifically at Google, conservatives feel like they have to keep their mouths shut. Christians feel like they have to suppress their religious identities. And they can talk a big game about bringing our true selves to work. But uh, in many cultures, it's just not possible. 
So to clarify, they didn't say bring your true selves to work. They said psychological safety was important. That's why I went and did work with them because they had all these tips and tricks. And I was like, actually, the number one way is to just be vulnerable yourself. And that doesn't mean that that's what Google's doing everywhere. I went to a specific team and I told the leader, I said, the way you establish psychological safety is you go deeper than them and you go more vulnerable. They won't trust you if you tell them your vulnerabilities and you do nothing about them. But they will love you and connect with you and learn how to lead themselves if you share the thing that you're struggling with the most as a leader and they get to walk with you on that journey rather than you hiding it from them. So what's an example of that? I mean, you can't just come out and say, I have a pornography addiction. I mean, how oh, do they- you're going with a really extreme example there. Well, no, uh, I'm just like saying, but, but what I'm saying <laughs> Everything is, comes back to porn. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> porn and fish, basically. <laughs> Here's a more practical example. When my startup was growing and we were on national TV and I knew that if I didn't handle the exposure well, that I would wreck our company, I realized I didn't know how to be a CEO. I had no idea how to lead a company. I wanted to tell my team that fact and everything in my head said, if I tell them that I have no idea how to run the company, they won't trust me. But I practiced these three principles and I went and I told them, and they helped me find a mentor, and then they got to walk through that journey with me. Now, at the same time, parallel to that, I was having a tremendous amount of marital trouble. I didn't necessarily just volunteer that information because it's not about disclosure. It's not about voluntary uh, disclosure of everything that you have that you're scared to share. It's about not hiding things that are relevant. It was relevant to my team that I had no idea how to be a CEO. That was relevant. It wasn't necessarily relevant that I was going through marital troubles. Now, if my number two comes to me and goes, how's your marriage? I'm probably going to tell him I'm going through marital problems. Right. But I'm not proactively disclosing all of the skeletons in my closet just because I'm suddenly doing with the 12-step people that I do a four-step. I'm saying that people can see when you're hiding a truth that's relevant to them, and that's when they lose trust. And so I think leaders should be able to share those things with the people, just like the example that I gave you. It's not necessarily about volunteering everything. What if the mask-free me is totally annoying? Oh, that's a great question. So this stuff actually gets pretty deep once you go into it. So the reason that people don't grow is because they don't live mask-free. Because when you live mask-free, you remove the thing that inhibits your ability to get a feedback loop. So I'll give you an example. When I was in rehab... They told me that I wasn't responsible for other people's feelings, which I was really excited about because it gave me license to do whatever the F I wanted. And so there was this guy that I didn't like. And I one day I just ripped him to shreds verbally. <laughs> I would just like, I was like emboldened by this whole notion that I wasn't responsible for his feelings. And the counselor comes up to me and he goes, Why did you do that? I was like, Hey, man, you said I'm not responsible for anyone's <laughs> feelings, dude. Like, that's not on me. He's like, You're right. You're right. You're not responsible for his feelings, but you get to decide whether you want to be responsible for being an asshole or not. <laughs> I was like, oh, so, and I'll give you one more example to seal it in. After I gave my TED talk about rigorous authenticity, I was feeling myself and I thought I was Tony Robbins for a minute. And so I started like doing these interventions on my friends, unprompted, unsolicited, just like, this is what you need to do. Cause I thought I was Tony Robbins for a second. And so I had three different instances with three of my best friends where they were telling me a problem and I just like butted in with, here's what you're doing wrong and here's what you need to do. And all three of them were like, hey, could you not be so arrogant and tell me what I need to do? I'll ask you for advice if I want it, but I'm just trying to share with you what I'm going through. In that moment, I was being authentic. 
I was telling them what I thought, but I had a feedback loop. And in that feedback loop, I got to make a decision. Do I want to be the guy that interrupts my friends when they're talking about something that's difficult and tells them what they need to do and, and lives in that arrogance? Or do I want to practice empathy and love them and, and create a safe space and then ask for permission to share what I see? In that moment, I got to change who I was. I got to change my value system. I got to amend it because I wasn't obscuring it in the first place. I was living with it and the world gave me a feedback loop that said that this won't work. Same way if I decided that I want to be naked all the time, if I go into a supermarket and I just walk in naked, I'm going to experience a consequence that's potentially going to want me to amend what I value. Does that help at all? Yeah, absolutely. And I think understanding where those lines are is really important to striking the appropriate balance. By the way, I think Tony Robbins for a minute would be a great name for a podcast, number one. <laughs> and when you're talking about ripping your colleague to shreds, that runs along the line of the next question I'd written down, which you've already answered, which is where's the line between practice rigorous authenticity and telling your boss she's a jerk? Well, you know, interestingly enough, when you apply the three principles... You can actually apply them to this. So I want to avoid a difficult conversation. I don't want to tell my boss that they're a jerk. So that's my practice rigorous authenticity. I've identified mm -hmm. the mask. Now I need to surrender the outcome if I want to do that. So the outcome is what? I'm worried that she'll be upset. I'm worried that maybe I'll get fired or something like that. So now I focus on, okay, what can't I control? I can't control her reaction. I can't control that she's a jerk. I can't control what the impact to me is. What can I control? I can control whether or not I operate in a way that is aligned with my value system, which is I always want to give the people around me the information they need to grow. I can control whether I give her the information. I can control how I communicate it. And I can control whether I talk to a mentor on the best way to deliver that in a way that isn't polarizing. And then the uncomfortable work is to talk to the mentor on how to communicate it and then communicate it. And you can communicate anything to anyone as long as you know how to do it. And so in that example, a lot of people, because they don't actually apply those three principles in that way, they think it's binary. They think I tell her and I risk losing the job or I just hold it. And it's really not that binary. It's not that black and white. And, that, and so you have to use this process over and over and over and over again to understand how to be true to yourself in word and action. This is the last question along those lines. Say you're at work surrounded by positivity junkies who don't hear feedback because anything that's perceived as negative will be misconstrued. How do I offer honest feedback without being written off as a negative Nelly? Okay. So the first thing you do is you identify what mask you want to wear. And in this example, it's you want to hold back your unique perspective because it's different. Then you practice principle two and you surrender the outcome. What's the outcome you're worried about? You're worried about being the negative Nelly. Okay. What does that really mean to you? You're worried about getting fired. You're worried about not being liked, not being successful some way, not getting your needs met. Let's let that go. How are we going to let that go? Identify what you can't and can't control. You can't control that that's how they are. You can't control that that's the environment, what they're doing. You can't control how they react. You can't control how you communicate it. You can't control how you understand the best way to communicate it. And you can't control whether you communicate it and honor your truth and risk taking an unpopular stance, which is freaking what leadership is. And then you do the uncomfortable work. And so in that example, if it's important to you to communicate it and address it, like for me, I always try to address those things when I see them. I just apply the three principles. And going back to my example that I said with when I worked at the Fortune 50 company, you might risk being different. You might risk being unpopular. Like to me, that's what leading yourself is. It's the willingness to be true to yourself, even if other people don't like it. It doesn't mean you have to do things that ruin your career. That's why you can apply the three principles to identify the best way to do it. 
Okay, let's talk about the power of a sponsor. When I work out with a trainer, I am an athlete giving everything I have. And when I work out by myself, I eat a donut on the treadmill. Why is that? <laughs> that sounds like a personal problem to me. I, I don't, <laughs> oh, it's definitely don't a personal problem. What is the power of external accountability? The power of external accountability is, I think, pretty well known. But just to say it, it's you speak things into the universe and you get to see yourself in the mirror of another human being. At the end of the day, that's like the value of it. Now, what I'll say is a sponsor is unlike any other type of coach or leader. They are the best leaders in the world because unlike a coach, unlike an executive coach, unlike an executive or a CEO, the way that they lead you is not by leading you. It's by showing you how they lead themselves and they share everything, the negative and the positive, but most importantly, they lead through vulnerability by sharing how they overcome their own challenges using a proven system. In a 12-step program, that's a sponsor saying, this is how I use the 12 steps. And so I tell a story in my book in chapter five about when my sponsor fell off this like pedestal that I had him on because he was eating sugar like a maniac. And I was like, this is addictive behavior. And I was like, dude, what the heck? I'm trusting you with my life and you're acting like an addict with sugar. And he said, yes, I am. So let's apply the steps and why don't you walk through this with me and let's see the way that I lead myself. Let's see if you can learn how to lead yourself in the process. And he's using the worst crap about him to show me how he learns how to lead himself. And that allows me to lead myself. And that's so different. In what ways would a sponsor have helped you from making some of the worst decisions you've made? I mean, they have like, so one example is I went through a divorce. I tell a story in my book, The Tale of Two Divorces at the End, where I had to divorce my business partner and my wife at the same time. That's fun. Um, and, and sell my company. And then I'm sure somewhere in there I wanted to eat a donut while walking on a treadmill. <laughs> but I think that, you know, when I went through that process, I'm not going to tell the story because it's in the book and it's too much to unpack here. But I went through a process where I discovered something where I was going to end up with a million dollars that really my ex-wife deserved. And in terms of it, like my integrity. And so I didn't know what to do. And so when I called my sponsor, one of the things they did was instead of saying, this is what you need to do because I'm an expert, they said, here's a similar experience where I had this challenge and here's what I did. And they told me a time where they failed what they wanted to do and a time where they were successful. And then I'm able to pick out of that what I want to do to lead myself. And so when I heard the story of someone saying, essentially, when I prioritized money over doing the next right thing, the coding of guilt that I walked through was not worth it. And then when they said, when I gave money that I was holding on to that was someone else's, I felt a level of abundance and freedom. And, and there was all these other practical things that they went through. And so I'm able to look through all that and go, well, who do I want to be? What decision do I want to make? Because they're not telling me what to do. They're just sharing their experience with the vulnerability. And I made a decision where I gave up that million dollars in order to have my integrity. And that's just like one example of, of the way that a sponsor helped me make a better decision. Let me see if I can summarize it correctly. So you had signed your divorce agreement based on a previously agreed to third-party evaluation of your company. When yep. you actually went to sell it, the investment bank came back with a valuation that was six times higher. Yep, on At, the same day. On the same day. So you had a signed divorce agreement, but then you realized you may have, through no fault of your own, represented that you had far less potential money than you actually had. Yep. So then you go back to your wife and say, you need to know this and I want to make it right. What did she say when you went back to her with that news? 
Uh, well, first of all, I didn't go to her because I wanted to keep the money. And so I called my sponsor and then oh. I had to listen to what they said. <laughs> and then I had to make a different decision. So let's be clear. I wanted to keep the money. I didn't want to tell her, screw her. Well, it wasn't money. It that. was potential money, right? It wasn't. It was, it's easier to do it with potential money. Absolutely. How did she react when you proactively came clean? Oh man, I want to give you the movie moment. She was stunned and floored. But she wasn't like, oh my God, thank you. I, I didn't get the, like the gold star for being such a good guy. I got, oh, wow, okay. And then I'll talk to my lawyer. And then, and then the lawyer does the talking and we have to redo everything. And, oh and she God. was, I mean, she was cordial. She was respectful, but she wasn't like, oh my God, Mike, thank you so much for doing the right thing here. <laughs> well, it could have been another movie moment, which is you dirty bastard. Why were you hiding this from me the whole time? I don't trust you. And you hired some lackey CPA firm to undervalue your company. Okay, that's a really good point. But of course, I want to see the negative in things. So thank you for showing me the positive. Uh, I want to see the positive. But you're right. Like she didn't think that I was intentionally hiding it because I disclosed what was going on prior to it. And she didn't give me the gold star, but she was grateful. And she acknowledged that that was something that I didn't have to do. I also think that her lawyer made it clear to her where he said, look, I know that he thinks he did a good thing here, but if he had done that, I probably would have sued him. So it's probably in his best interest that he did that. Sure, yeah. It's not just being able to live with yourself. It's like lying. If you don't lie, you don't have to remember what lies you've told, right? So If you don't wear a mask, you don't have to remember two identities. And so to me, the biggest thing about living mask-free is you have to let go of all the outcomes you typically care about and living mask-free becomes the outcome that you care about. And if that becomes the outcome, you will have some losses, but you will have a lot more gains and you'll reclaim so much energy and be so much happier just living one life. You made millions selling your company. Has having a big chunk of change changed your life in any way? God, nobody's actually ever made me talk about that directly before. I hate talking about that, but I will because I'm living mass free. And I think it's actually a really important question. Um, I don't want to get into how much or, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, no, I just I want to know what does it mean to you? And has it changed the way you see yourself, your mission, or the way you work differently? So I was working with a therapist once and I remember I was telling her I was always scared that I wouldn't have enough money and I was going to be homeless. And I said, I just want to have security. And I remember one day she leaned in and whispered and she said, there's no such thing as security. <laughs> and I was terrified. For me personally, I had enough experiences trying to buy things to make me happy that I knew that the money itself would not make me happy. I did buy a house that I'd always wanted. And I shot a video when I moved in where I said, I know that this isn't going to make me happy. I know this is temporary. And I know a year from now I will take it for granted. Mm. So I want to remember this moment because I'm really grateful for the house, but I have to know that it's not going to make me happy. And I think I'd gone through so many recovery experiences that taught me that lesson that by the time I had money, I was ready for it because I knew that it wasn't going to make me happy. And then also I went to meet with a wealth manager. And once I understood the ratios of how long am I going to live, rate of return and inflation, I realized that the whole thing my therapist had said about security was freaking real <laughs> and that it didn't mean jack and that I had a whole new responsibility of managing it and doing the right things. And so it was just like, I was prepared. Now what I will say, because I don't want to be one of those guys, it's like, oh, it didn't change. I don't think money can make you happy. I think it can save you pain when right. appropriately used. And I do appreciate the freedom, for example, to carry this message that it has afforded me and to choose what I do with my time and how I want to make an impact. And I'm grateful for that. And that's something that is so much better than it was. 
But I had to have a really healthy relationship with money and understand that people think money is going to solve all their problems. But once you get to like the third rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, money's not going to do it for you anymore. Now, anyone that's in the first three rungs, it can be substantially impactful for them. But, you know, I'd already taken care of those rungs. Yeah, up to a certain point, an additional dollar is relieving pain. Past a certain point, it's just a better car. You know, and yeah, and I had to make a decision with my startup that we didn't raise venture capital because people were like, this could be a billion dollar company. And I was like, well, that increases our risk. And I'll tell you, the second million isn't going to change my life the way the first million is. So I'd rather increase my probability of getting that first million than decrease my probability of the first million chasing the second. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs that are like all about the second home and the boat and all this other stuff. And I'm not judging that. But I personally don't think that that stuff brings me happiness. And that's got to be a really healthy relationship I got to have with money because I, I think that we are trained to think that it's just the end all for happiness and it's not. Well, the problem is that there's no end to that because after the second house, there's a third house. And after the boat, right. there's, there's a plane. It's addiction. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I'm coming to through the the writing that I do and the conversations that I have is like, it's about having a firm understanding of what is enough and what you want from life and being grateful for those things. I mean, how do you feel about the house now? If you had that attitude before, you're probably actually still pretty appreciative when you drive up the driveway. You know what's so funny you say that? I moved 20 times in the last 20 years. Part of the reason is I kept thinking if I could move into a better place, I would feel better. And I played that game so much that walking into this one, I was like, I want something different after a year. I've lived here longer than any place I've ever lived in, partially because it's harder to move. Um, and, uh, now that you, you have a more stuff, more stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. I have a level of appreciation. When I drive down the driveway, half the days I take it for granted or I look at the things that I wish were different. But half the days I'm like, oh my God, I'm so grateful. And every other place I'd ever lived in before, within a year, I would just be like, God, I got to move. I was able to appreciate this and I continue to be able to appreciate this, but on any given day, if I'm not spiritually centered, I'll think about how I want someone else's house. Well, let's talk about it any given day. What are your daily practices for maintaining physical and mental health? I get up in the morning around six. I do some, depending on how detail you want, some specific ab exercises that my physical therapist <laughs> made me do. We don't need to go, whether they're bicycles I, or planks, we don't need to get into it. <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's important to share that he said you have the weakest butt of any man in the history of the world. Your glutes are just terrible. I don't know. I saw your TED talk, Mike. I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I never mind. That. Never mind that. So I get up and I, I have to do some sort of physical activity to get things going. And then I'll go for a run or I'll lift weights. And then that's what allows me to wake up and get into my body. And then the most important thing comes next. I have to meditate and I don't always. And if I don't, it's not that that day is bad. It's that days become bad because it's like a muscle that atrophies. And I was trying to explain to someone the other day that meditating for 20 minutes is faster than meditating for 10. And they're like, that's not possible. I'm like, yes, it is. But so I meditate. And then about 830, I start working. Luckily today, I work out of my house doing virtual business. And I was choosing to do that before. And so I'll do work until 4.55 p.m. And at 4.55 p.m., I go upstairs and I have dinner with my family. And then we put our daughter to bed at seven and then I spend time with my wife and then I read and then I go to bed and do it again. And then on Wednesdays and Friday nights, I go to my 12 step home group that starts at 730 PM. And that's the difference in that ritual. And Monday nights, I also hold my mask free society meetings for people that are living the mask free way, but I'm a creature of routine. And then on the weekends, like I defend that time fiercely. It's just time with my daughter and my wife. 
doing whatever. I mean, sometimes obviously something comes up, but like I'm a creature of habit. That's what's required. And when I don't connect with my wife, when I don't connect with my daughter, when I don't connect with my home group, when I don't connect with meditation and my higher power, when I don't connect with my body through exercise, things start to suffer. Last question. How do you measure your success these days? Oh, man. Right now, we have about 60 people working the mastery program and working their 28-day action cards, working on a mask. And to me, it's a good day and we're successful when I see people's lives being changed. And I feel like that's what every a-hole that's trying to look like a prosperity or motivational person would say. (laughs) But for me, that's what makes it worth it. Not seeing them inspired. I think people sell an inspiration like candy. It's seeing the impact and the difference and the change it's like seeing the person that works till 10 p.m. at night work a mask reaction card on saying yes when you could say no and then stopping work at 6 p.m. and spending time with her dogs and her husband and seeing her reclaim those 60 hours in one month. Like that is what I get off on. That is so exciting. And so to me, I want you know there to be 10,000 people in our mask-free society. So I think I have some level of quantitative desire there. We need some level of revenue for this thing to be sustainable. I can't fund it out of my pocket forever. But at the end of the day, right now, it's seeing those impacts, and that's what makes it worth it. That's awesome. Was that a cop out? That totally sounds like a cop out, like I, a motivational. Was it true? Cop-out. Was it true, or was it not true? Yes, it was okay. true. Then it's, it's not a cop out. Then it's not a cop out. All right, Thank Michael Brody. Wait, the book is "Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts: How to Lead Like Your Life Depends on It." Michael, where can people find you online? Two ways: Google Michael Brody Wait because there's only one Brody hyphen weight in the world. Um, and you'll find my website, my social, and I'm putting out mass free content. And then if you want to get into the mask free program, I have a website, it's mask free program, just all together. And you can go in there and you can take our mask assessment for free and get a tutorial on how to use the three principles for free. We'll put links to those sites in the episode notes. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed that conversation. I appreciate the opportunity to dig into some of your ideas, honestly and candidly, and you know, explore the ideas behind living mask-free, metaphorically speaking, of course. Hey, folks, if you like what we're doing here, sure would appreciate it if you rated and reviewed the podcast. Scroll down past all the episodes down to the bottom where you see the stars and the numbers. And so give us a nice juicy rating and tell us what you think. And if you have any feedback or guest ideas, or you just want to say hi, by all means, shoot me an email at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Would love to hear from you. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next week. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.